Welcome to another edition of Baseball and Beyond, presented by Masters Restaurants in St. Louis. Five locations, I talk about them all the time. stlmasses.com is where you can find menus and directions. They're all over St. Louis. They've been around forever, and I thank them for being my title sponsor. Today's guest is someone who enjoys a, a pizza, some pasta, some steak, and he's one of the funniest guys you'll ever, ever get to hear, and I get to hear it all the time. Uh, when I head to fantasy camp, it's Dave Lapointe, former Cardinal. Hello, Dave. Brad, how are you today? It's, you know, what, what's taking so long for me to get on the show? What's going on here? I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I'm kind of afraid of you. I got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid you're going to start saying some stuff that might get me. Uh, you know, this could be the last podcast. I'm always worried. I don't know. It's funny that you know we're all Facebook friends, and I, I think I've asked you before, and then I, I I don't know what happens. I sometimes I get. I don't know, Dave. I'm sorry. It's a preconceived reputation I have. Like I've gone on, you know, I'm doing some things here with Matt Stillwell and uh, the country and western singer. And, and I remember the first time he came to camp, I was over there coaching third base, and and the guy wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't even look at me. So a couple of years later, I said, Matt, why, you know, what did I do wrong to you? What's what, what's going on? He goes, I'm afraid of you. Yeah. I said, afraid of you? We've never even met. How can you be afraid of me? Because you have quite a reputation. So I, I guess that's a good thing in the long run. So so for folks who, first and foremost, uh, Joe Pfeiffer, Cadence, uh, Selena, they, they work the Cardinals fantasy camp. They put it together. Uh, they've created three camps, uh, one at uh, Cooperstown, two down in Jupiter. Sometimes there's uh, there's one in Memphis or St. Louis, not this year. But Dave is at every one of them. Uh, and, and, and Mr. LaPointe, a 1982 World Series champion, is um, he's sort of the all eyes and ears of the camp. So the first day you walk in and there's a dinner and everyone's nervous and excited and they get to be around Willie and Ozzy. And then Dave LaPointe gets up there and starts uh, looking through the media guide at what people may have said before the camp uh, and, and people get boisterous and then you just let them have it. And then the next day is the morning meeting and Dave gets up and talks about the things he's already seen from the players. Uh, and it is hilarious. Um, so no, you, the people should be afraid if they're going to fantasy camp. And that's probably the, the only reason they should be afraid of you. And, and we don't need writers. I mean, this, this stuff is made up right in front of us every day. As soon as you guys put uniforms on, we have ammunition for two hours later. So uh, another another funny story is when we finally get Willie McGee to come down and, and you know, everybody loves Willie. And, and believe it or not, me and Willie were locker mates in 1982. Uh, and believe it or not, neither one of us said anything for, you know, for that whole year. We were afraid of everybody else. But I said, man, Willie, what's going on? You're kind of avoiding me. He goes, man, I heard I'm afraid of you, man. I said, Willie, now there are certain rules down here, and I do not get on the cream of the crop, you know, the legends, the hall of famers, you guys, you guys are off limits. So, you know, I want to, it's job security. I'm not going to get on you guys. So we, we've been okay after that. But now it, he comes and tells me stories. Right. Yeah. And Willie's unbelievable. I mean that I'm a fan of this stuff and I was a fan of the eighties and just, I, I get the biggest kick, my favorite part. And, and this is, I'm trying to, I'm not here to sell fantasy camp for Joe and, and cadence and Cardinals, but I, I, I will because it's the best experience of my life just to, to, to hang out at, at the bar at later after the dinner and just talk to Willie for an hour and get him laughing. And when you get Willie laughing, it's just so much fun. I mean, the fantasy camp so much fun. You go every year. Just tell, uh, tell me what uh, brings you there every year and, uh, and this sharp tongue that you bring. Um, when did that start? Well, uh, back in the day before the Cardinals ran it, uh, a girl by the name of Judy Eaglehoff ran it. And 
I, you know, they, they try and pick and choose every year who's going to be new to camp and, and who they want to invite. So, um, she called me up and said, well, I'd like to come down. Of course, I said, you know, get me on the plane right now. I want to go down and do this. But just getting amongst your old teammates and uh, and telling the stories and getting to see each other and learn what's going on in their lives since you've last seen each other, that makes it pretty special. And then when the ragging and the ripping starts going on, it's just like we're in the locker room, you know, 30 years ago. And, and you know, back then you had to look out, you had to watch your back and you had to see who was, you know, trying to get you. And, uh, it, it's still the same exact thing. And, and, you know, it's like they, they say Peter Gammons has got like, you know, about 2000 stringers out there to get his stories. Well, there's an awful, there's, there's some stringers in camp too. I get guys come up and tell me story no matter what time of night it is. So, uh, my, my job is pretty easy. I will, and I, this is my last sales point. I, the playing of the games is like ninth on the list of great things. I always, I think the, my favorite thing is, you, you, like we said, there's a morning meeting after all the games. You come in and we talk about the games from the day before. And to see the ex-players sitting there laughing, it's like to see Ozzy double over or Brian Jordan. And the, it just looks like what the locker room would look like. And I get the biggest kick out of that because I, you can tell these guys – First of all, they come back all the time, so they obviously love it. But you can tell they're enjoying this so much. Uh, I love the just the the uh, boy. What is that word? Proliferary? What is the word I'm trying to? I, I'm not an English major, but all the stuff around camp, the games, like I said, ninth, tenth. It's fun putting on the uniform and playing the games, but all the other stuff I see is just is my favorite part. And uh, like I said, people should go and, and see it. Um, so you are, like I said, you're, I, mean, I have you to here to, to, to tell some stories. Uh, but yeah, 1982, you're a rookie. Um, you're with the Cardinals, and you're on a World Series team. Just tell me a little bit about that process of being a rookie. Uh, no one knows a team's going to win a World Series when you're playing on it, but you knew that defense was good. You knew Whitey was good. You knew that they'd, uh, they created a, a, sen- a, a good sense of winning. Tell me a little bit about how you thought that team was stacking up as you guys kind of got into – July, August, and September. Did it have a feel of a team that could could win a championship? Or do you have feels like that? Well, um, eighty two, of course, like you said, was my rookie year, and so was it for uh, David Green, Willie McGee, Jeff Lottie, John Martin, John Stuper. Um, we had quite a few rookies on that team, so we didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. And when you're a rookie, that was the first year that I made a major league team out of spring training. So you're pretty excited. I mean, all the hard work's paid off, and <clears throat> We opened up the season in Houston, and we beat Nolan Ryan, I think it was 15-4. to And I remember getting on the phone to my parents after that game saying, I'm not going to be here very long. Uh, Nolan Ryan just gave up 15 runs. So, um, you know, you learn. And then, you know, the first half of that season, I had the easiest job in the world. I I came in to face a left-handed hitter, and usually they would pinch hit a right-hander who I pitched better against. And if I didn't get that guy out, Bruce Souter was right behind me. So I had very little chance of giving up a run unless, you know, unless I gave up a home run. Um, second half, they turned me into a starter, uh, which I had been, you know, my in my minor league career, and I felt more comfortable. But, um, yeah, going out there day in and day out, you're watching, which I think was the best infield in the history of baseball, uh, with Obi at third and Ozzie and Tommy Herr and Keith Fernandez. Uh, you know, and then we had the, the fast outfield. You know, you just wonder, man, that's why it's the big leagues. Every ball that goes out there is caught. And I, I don't think, 
you know, we knew we were playing pretty good. There was two things that I remember along the way that uh, that we started getting the fever. It was the night that, that Glenn Brummer stole home <laughs> against Gary Lavelle and the Giants. And um, later on, we had that game in Philadelphia where we had bases loaded and, and nobody out, or it was one out, and, and Bruce Suter facing Mike Schmidt. That was a, you know, one hopper, one, two, three, double play, and we're out of there, and you know, then then you thought you had it. Uh, the last hurdle we go into Shea Stadium, and there's a couple stories about this. Ozzy gets hurt before we go into Shea. We got five games in three days against the Mets in their ballpark. Mike Ramsey comes in and plays shortstop. 32 chances without an error. We sweep the Mets five games in three days. But uh, in the middle of that, um, I was one of those guys that got out there early and usually played cards with the clubhouse guys and you know like when you see me down at camp i was just getting more information i was i was gathering intel and it's friday we got a doubleheader coming up and i'm sitting down there playing cards and whitey comes out of his office and he sits down at the you know the card table with me and goes mind if i have a hand you know play a hand with you oh no not now he's gonna set me down it's august i won't get called back up this has got to be the worst scenario ever he looks, he goes, he goes, relax. He goes, I'm not sending it down. I'm not, you know, I'm going to take you out of the rotation. You're, uh, you're physically, you're a little bit tired, but mentally, you know, the, the strain of the big leagues has gotten to you a little bit. He goes, plus you pitch good against the Mets and the Pirates and the Expos. And that's who are on a road trip. He goes, you're probably going to relieve against the Mets and get a win. You're probably relieve against the Pirates and get a win. And then you're going to start the game in Montreal where we clinch the pennant. And I'm looking at him, the clubhouse guys are looking at Whitey like, yeah, whatever. Where'd you come up with this story? And sure enough, I, I leave against the Mets. I lose the game in the 10th on a home run to George Foster. I beat the Pirates, and then I start the game that we clinched the pennant against Montreal. Now, th- that's Whitey. That's why we who played for him just love him to death and think he's the god of all gods of baseball. I had a conversation. Um, I don't know if you know Will Leach. He's uh, used to run Deadspin, but he uh, de- big Cardinal fan, but does a lot of writing uh, for MLB.com. And we were talking about um, you know Matheny just gets hammered here in St. Louis. Some of it justified, some of it not. I, but I just uh, I said I don't remember, and there was no Twitter, there was no social media, so fans really didn't have that much of a voice. They'd call in KMOX, but I don't remember Whitey ever getting grilled ever by Cardinal fans. Um, I just don't remember any criticisms of him, and I just find that I was thinking about that. Like, what did Whitey ever do that was wrong as a manager? Like, I don't remember. I mean, I was a kid. I was, you know, ten. I don't. I thought he handled a bullpen correctly. I mean, maybe my dad would tell me, but different. But it just seems like there there was not much to criticize Whitey about. Like, he just had the lineup, and here's your lineup, and we're throwing that out there. Also, had a great yeah, team he, too. He's. I mean, there's a lot many teams I played for, and all the different managers that I've seen. He's the only one that you know i'll put the right hand up and swear in the bible that the rest of the team just did not second guess when he made a decision it just it always made sense and it puts you in the best chance to win and you know it might have involved you it might have involved somebody else they might not liked it but when you really thought about it it really put the team in the best chance to win and um you know he's always standing down there in the left end with the leg up on the third step and got his jaw of tobacco in and, and the wheels were turning and you just left him alone because, you know, he was in his office. So well, I think it was 80, 83, about, you know, early August, we're, we're kind of out of the race and we got no chance. And he's, he's sitting on the bench, you know, like he's not in the spot. He's sitting on the bench and like, 
Now we got to move further down because we don't want to be seen by the manager. We don't want to be heard. We, you know, we're better left, you know, in, in the in the dark. So finally, he looks down at us, and we're all like kind of like cramped together at the far right end of the dugout. And he just started laughing. He goes, "Boys, come here, loosen up a little bit." He goes, "You know, we're kind of out of this race." He goes, "Let me show you what I'm thinking." And uh, you know, he pointed out a thing. I'm going to go do this and do that, and, and Chuck Tanner's going to go do the same thing in his dugout, and. He goes, I'm going to do this uh, against the Mets and Davey Johnson next time. We, you know, he's going to stand up and point at the card. And and every time he said something like that, the exact verbatim thing happened across in the other dugout. It was just, he was just an amazing man to watch and, and just an amazing mentor to play for. I just wonder too. I know eras are different, and you can't compare players and eras. You can, but it's just not real fair. But I, I just do wonder. What uh, a Cardinal team, you know, if he had these same guys and was managing them, how different it would be in this style of baseball, which is just not great. That April, they said this is the first month ever that had more strikeouts than hits. The, the game is just different. Uh, people wait for home runs, launch angles, the whole thing. I, I just wonder, I'm not even saying the stolen base thing, though, I'll, although I just don't understand. Everyone's so afraid of getting thrown out at second base on a stolen base, and, and maybe there's not enough guys here that can do it now. But I would just, it would be fun a fun little uh, task to see if, you know, Whitey had had a couple games in him. And uh, they, hey, hey, Mike Matheny has to leave for a graduation. We're going to make uh, Whitey the interim manager for the for the weekend and just see what the, what the what the game would look like. Because it doesn't I, – every I feel like the, the MLB is becoming like the NFL. Everyone's doing copycat. And now it's like, oh, everyone, everyone's trying to hit home runs? Okay, that's what we're going to do. It would be fun to see what happened if Whitey would do some uh, managing this day. Don't you think? Well, yeah, I, and, and here's what I, I I don't think the I don't know if the Cardinals do it. I don't think the Cardinals do it. But could you imagine Whitey sitting in his office at one o'clock in the afternoon and and they send a lineup down to him, you know, or you give him a sheet of paper? Okay, in this situation, in the sixth or seventh inning, you're supposed to bring this pitcher in. I, I think that would be pretty funny. But uh, no, you know, he uh, he he was his own sabermetrics. He he knew what he wanted to do, and he knew his. Uh, you know, I think the best line that I ever heard him say was the the three hours before the game and the three hours after the game are more important than the three hours during the game. Meaning you had to know your personnel and what was going on. And he made it a point for him specifically. He didn't send out, you know, the, the coaches to find out his information. He knew himself. He came and talked to the players every day and knew what they were going through. If they were having marital problems, if they were having money problems, if their parents were in town and you know, things like that. So he just knew when to put you in the best spot to win, and, and, and that's that's what made him so good. I love what you say there, too. He had his own sabermetrics because you watch um, like a, the 1985 film, and he can give he can rattle off what the team was after the seventh inning, their record after the eighth inning, and, and like you said, he, you know, I know all managers keep track of who does who against who or who does well against who, but it, you're right. He had it all in his head. I, I love Rick Horton's uh, getting called up uh, story or being told he's going to make the team in 83. Uh, so 81, you're with the Brewers. You get a little cup of coffee, but tell me about 82. Um, was there a fun story about Whitey uh, telling you you made the team? Uh, no, uh, but I do remember um, we had Vincente Romo in camp. And oh, yeah, Vincente, I remember him. Countdowns. I remember I was listening to Vicente Romo tell his wife that if you see me on the field tonight, that means I've made the team. But here, here's what it was. We had a night game of spring training, and we had to keep everybody around. So Vicente Romo had already been told, you know, you haven't made the team, but we got a game tonight. I want to keep you, you know, we need extra pitching. So we're in the field batting practice, and 
this group of people came in, all of a sudden this hysterical cries and yells of joy and everything like that. And it was in Cynthia Romo's family who saw him standing on the field thinking that he had made the team, but no, he, he hadn't, but he had the pitch that night. So, um, no, I've been on, uh, you know, Buddy Bates, our equipment manager, um, I guess they've seen it so many times that it, they, you get, you know, hardened to the fact that, you, you know, what the other guys are feeling. You got to do your job. You got to get them out of there, take their equipment and get ready, you know, for the next day. So he would have a fake uh, plastic machine gun back in the day you could buy at a toy store and he'd just come up to your locker and shoot you, you know, like, all right, you got you to go see why you're getting sent down. And like, it's, it sure is funny when it isn't you. <laughs> and buddy, yeah, buddy was there for a long time. So, 82, you pitch in the World Series. You've got a great story about uh, Whitey again here. Um, you, you pitched in Milwaukee, and um, you pitched well. I, I like that there was only one earn, earn run charge to you um, because I th- – did you have an error in that game, I think, uh, that you talk, you have a story about? What are you getting at, Brad? <laughs> well, it's easy to keep your own run average down when you make your own errors. <laughs> Sorry. Now, wait a second. I want to go on record and say, you know what? I did get an out after that error. Okay, so <laughs> I'm not totally responsible here. But yeah, I uh, got into that sixth inning and uh, sixth or seventh inning, whatever it was. Ben Ogilvy hits a uh, you know two hopper to Keith Hernandez, but the second hop takes an awesome you know just big old hop, and nobody but Keith Hernandez catches that ball, so he snags it makes a perfect throw to me and hits me right in the center of my glove, covering first base and uh, hit center of my glove and then hit the center of the ground. So um, at the time, you don't think anything of it. You get back on the mound, you do your job. I get the next guy out. I think this, well, this is, this is pretty good, but they, uh, they proceed to get seven straight hits off the relievers and I'm sitting in there and I just know what's coming. I'm going to have my first real uh, negative press conference in my life. So, um, but it didn't bother me. As I said, you know what? I'd rather make that error again. It got me a ring. But did Whitey, uh, you guys are golfing, I think, a couple years later. Did he say something? Your, your nickname was yeah, Scoops, he, right? Yeah, uh, he may, just happened to make a comment that if that ball was a cheeseburger, I wouldn't have dropped it. So <laughs> um, when a guy like Whitey makes that comment about it, you kind of roll with it. So uh, that, that has stuck with me over the year. And after that is when he... Uh, when he nicknamed me Snacks, he said we were out playing golf, and every time he looked, I was ordering a turkey sandwich and a piece of pizza and some Slim Jims and all this other stuff. So uh, we, we've had some fun over the years. That is so awesome, that relationship, too. And that's, again, the thing that I love about Fantasy Camp or Cardinal Baseball, and it's probably any team. Any team that wins, it's always so close, but just to see you guys all together. Um, what, so what does Dave LaPointe do the night you win the World Series? What, what goes on? You pop champagne. We know George Hendrick evidently got in his car and drove home to beat traffic, which is a great story. But in his uniform. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Bruce parked at the end of the right field tunnel. He was gone. But it didn't matter because I'd say the only disappointing thing about winning the World Series at home is that there were so many members of the press in there um, that you didn't see your teammates. You know, you saw champagne being squirted on people left and right, but – um, it wasn't as a group. It was one-on-one, whoever just happened to be in your locker. And I remember I'm in a lot of pictures with Gene Roof and, and Glenn Brummer. Um, maybe John Stupers in a few of them, but that, that's, that's it. You just didn't see anybody. So, um, of course, you had a lot of people in town. Um, and by the time they decided that they're all going to get tired and go to bed, that's when the, the boys decided they were going to go out. So, 
Suter had a very big party at his house. I remember that. And I don't know, it's about four or five o'clock in the morning. And, and uh, here's Tug McGraw pulling up in a limousine and saying, hey, why don't you guys come on Good Morning America? <laughs> and we're going, Tug, we've had about, you know, 20 beers and some champagne right now. I mean, it's not a good idea. And he was, he was just as bad as we were. So I, I don't think they had that show the next morning. <laughs> You and then you played with some characters. Obviously, uh, we talked about Willie. He's not really a character, but boy, Joaquin Andohar is a character. Lonnie Smith, uh, Daryl Porter, Keith Hernandez. There's a lot going on during those times. Do you have any fun stories uh, that you remember about some of your teammates or anything? Uh, road stories, some that you like uh, telling late at night about those guys or that, that those times in St. Louis. Um, you know, I probably have one about all of them. Uh, my favorite Lonnie story is. He's never had an inside-the-park home run, and we were playing the Phillies at the time. Bob Denier's a center fielder, and I'm on first. Lonnie hits the looping line drive that Denier dives for, and he misses it, goes over his glove. So circling around the bases, I'm coming in the home, and, and I see the sign, you know, saying slide, 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 and it wasn't for me. It was for Lonnie. So I slid at home plate and just stopped, and I was safe. Uh, Ozzy Virgil was the catcher. Lonnie just ran into my back and never touched home plate, and he was out. <laughs> so I remember him just real quietly at home plate saying, you know, I've never had an inside park home run. <laughs> so I'm walking off the field feeling really bad about that. Uh, there was, I remember playing with Ken Overfelt. I think we had bases loaded like in the second inning. Tito Francona is the batter and he comes up and he bunts. And nobody's expecting it, you know, who would with bases loaded, nobody out, you know, but. I'm going for the ball. I don't hear OB. He doesn't hear me. And I just, all, next thing I hear is the air going out of OB's chest. And I think I broke two of his ribs. <laughs> so those are two of the not so good stories that, uh, that went along with it. Uh, you know, there's always, there's always a lot of Glenn Brummer stories. Uh, you know, none, none that I can really tell, uh, on the air, off the air, that you'd have to go down to Fantasy Cap and, and get me there late at night to finish some of them. But uh, he did get me one time. We were in uh, Philadelphia, late in the game, two guys on, one out. Yvonne Jesus is the hitter, and for me, he was an automatic double play. If I threw him a strike, he was going to ground him a double play. And I go into my stretch, lift my leg up, and here's Brummer just standing up behind home plate with his hands up. So I just stop. And here's the umpire, Bach, you go to second, you go to third, no pitch. Well, as soon as he has Bach, Whitey is sprinting out of the dugout, and he's headed for the mound. You know, he gets like, what the hell's going on out here? What are you doing? And Drummer just luckily goes, Whitey, well, it's my fault. I, I forgot what I called. So now you want to laugh. Well, you know, Whitey wants to laugh because it's just a typical Glenn Brummer story, and I, I want to laugh. But, you know, you still realize you're now you got second and third, you're in a jam. But these these things go on out there, and that's why there's always so many stories after you retire that, uh, you know, it's just a good bunch of guys, and when you have a good bunch of guys and you're winning, you're going to have some good stories afterwards. Yeah, I think most people know, uh, I mention it probably every time I do this show, but I used to work at Fox Sports Midwest, and I would have Glenn Brummer on twice a year just because I find it. I found it to be just comedically hysterical. Uh, he was a, 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 he's so funny. He's a, he's just a different guy. And I was told uh, the last time I had him on, don't ever have him on again. That's when I knew it might be time to, to get out of there because I find it funny, but uh, other people didn't. But I, I'm looking at your career now. So you move on to San Francisco. You play in Detroit, San Diego, White Sox. So San Francisco is uh, your next season. So what what happens in '85? How how uh, what how do you end up? That was a trade for Jack Clark, I believe, right? So uh, were you? 
How 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 disappointing was it to uh, be traded away, and then that team went sixty two and one hundred. Yeah, we uh, as a matter of fact, right before then, uh, well, in January we're on the caravan, the Cardinal caravan, and we're going. I think we ended up. I think Peoria was the last place we were at, and it's been fairly quiet. The Cardinals had a very quiet off season, and somebody goes, "Hey, you know, Mike, is there any?" Mike Sheehan, is there any trade rumors that we should know about? He you know, gives us Mike Sheehan a laugh. <laughs> Why don't we uh, say we're going to trade Dave LaPointe for Jack Clark? <laughs> you know, sort of laughing about it, which I'm laughing at it too. That's that sure is a bad trade for the uh, for the Giants. And um, I get off the caravan, I go into my house, and the phone rings. You know, you've been traded for Jack Clark. But here, the bad thing about that was uh, pending Jack Clark taking a physical. And it's like they couldn't find him for two weeks. Like, I'm still waiting every day. Am I traded? Am I not traded? Are you going to pass this physical? You know, do you sell a house? Do you not sell a house? And uh, and it was painful. Uh, believe me, that's that's the most. I mean, I always say if it's in the big leagues, you don't care if you're traded or not. But it was definitely the most painful thing that I went through in my major league career to get traded away from the Cardinals and, and, and that organization. It's good to know, though, that you're being traded for a uh... – a guy that could have been an MVP in this town the three years he was here. So I, I would think well, if you look back on it, maybe it's better. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Well, that's why I say I'm, I'm responsible. I was on one World Series team, and I was responsible for two National League championship teams. So um, I, should, I should be remembered well in the, in, the, in the gateway. So 1985, San Francisco, you have the greatest 1 a.m. past story I've ever heard. I don't know. Again, I've begged you twice uh, before we did this to tell the story, but I'll, I'll just say uh, – you had some issues during the anthem one time. I'll let you go if you don't want to do for, it. For you, Brad, and just for you, I will tell the story. Oh, everybody sit so we, back and enjoy. We uh, we have a Sunday afternoon game against the Padres at home. Of course, you're wearing a white uniform, and and I'm just about ready to go. I'm taking my last warm-up pitch, and Mother Nature called, and I couldn't hold it. <laughs> not And not, not one, right? Not number one, number number two was knocking at the door, and I and I had so much adrenaline going through me that I had no way of, of stopping. So, <laughs> Bob Miller, the pitching coach, who's you know the pitching coach, always stands right behind you, and he goes. And the funny thing is, he's looking at my face. He's trying not to look down at my pants, and he goes, "Did you do what I thought you just did?" And I go, "I did." <laughs> he goes, "Oh my God!" He goes, "All right, go up and change your pants. You know, while we're changing the anthem, we're doing the national anthem. I'll, I'll slow the anthem down. Just run up now." Well, thank God the bullpens of San Francisco were right down. You know, there was a ramp to get into the clubhouse. You didn't have to go out through the dugout or anything, so it was right there. So, the next best thing about it, there was nobody else in the clubhouse at the time. So, I don't know as an athlete if you ever had to go through this, but it is not easy changing a baseball uniform with a pile of crap in your underwear trying not to get it on the rest of your uniform. <laughs> but being the, the talented, multitasking left-hander that I am, I was, I was managed to uh, do everything right, get all clean and put on the new uniform and be down there and just got down to the dugout as the last notes of the National Anthem were being played and I went out, and I, I think I beat the Padres 3-2 to two that day. So all in all, it turned out to a, be a good day. The best part was me and the pitching coach were the only two that knew what happened, and he – I think I pitched eight innings that day, and he laughed at me all eight innings when I came into the dog. He never once talked about strategy or mechanics. He just laughed at me every time I came in. So me, me and him had a great relationship after that. 
So he saw it or he smelled it or all the above? He, he, uh, I think he heard it more than anything. <laughs> One of those senses. Well, if you get the Expos in town, you could have had O Canada played too. I like the slowing down the anthem thing. That's what. Hey, can you go a little slower? Can you can you hit that last note for maybe thirty? Well, I, I think it was. I don't know if you remember San Francisco. They used to have a guy called the Whistler. He'd come out and whistle the anthem. That took forever. So that's why I think it was there that day. You do tell this story better at one a.m. Or maybe I just think it's better when I've had a few drinks of me. But uh, it's it's still great. So I love that story. It's, it's, it's better when the language is different. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. But I think it's, it's one of my favorite stories of all time. I don't know why it is, but because it, because it's you too. I think that's why it's funny too. Because it's <laughs> the funny thing is, is when you go through, when you're around a bunch of ball players and you're all talking again, it's like you you think it's a funny story and you think it's uncommon. Believe me, it's not. <laughs> um. So I mentioned that you kind of you you do the I do I am curious about I never have asked you about this too so you get back to the Cardinals in '87 for the early part of the year uh, and then you're traded again they're just like teasing you now um, how did how did that come about did you tell me about that the '87 because you pitched uh, in April a little bit and then uh, off to the White Sox yeah well it started uh, before then I had gone through the collusion and. Uh... I had no job right up till February. I was coming from San Diego, and they Jack McKeon is the one that put the collusion on me and, and said that I was untouchable. So I, you know, I was going to have to settle for whatever salary they wanted me to go back at. So I talked to, you know, I called some people about it, and they said, "Yeah, you know, there's nothing we can do. You're you're untouchable." The next day, the Giants called, and they want me to go back out and try out. So I called back to my people and said, "Listen, I, I thought you said I was untouchable." why are the Giants having me try out, you know? And so Cardinal said, what, you know, what do you want to make? What contract do you want? I said this so much. And they said, well, you got it. You know, you're coming to spring training with us. So um, got to spring training and broke with the team. I didn't pitch very well. Wasn't doing very well at all. And um, they sent me down to Louisville. Um, then I got called back up because Fergosi went over to, the White Sox, and he saw what I was doing and knew I could pitch a little bit, so they, they went and got me. And the funny thing is, once I got over there, um, I, I mean, I think the first game I pitched in Milwaukee, I had a no-hitter through five. And I, and I remember the people from St. Louis calling up saying, you know what, they had you on the scoreboard every inning. And that's the way St. Louis was. They, they you know, they, they took care of you. But anyways, uh, in the next, I don't know, two-year, one-year period, um, with the White Sox, because I got called up in August. Um, maybe it was the end of July. But, you know, I, was, I, was, I had won 20 games over the next year period. And it was just one of those things. I know for a fact if I stayed with the Cardinals, even if they put me in the rotation, I, I wouldn't have pitched that well. I was just, you know, the, the, the welcome was worn out on my, on my end. I just wasn't doing it. I needed the change of scenery. And I went to the White Sox and pretty familiar with Fergosi and some of the guys they had over there and, and just really went on a tear that uh, the next the first full year I had there, I think at the All-Star break, I was leading the league in ERA. So every, everything went good with the White Sox, and, and then they uh, they ended up trading me to Pittsburgh. You know, I asked the general manager, why why would you trade me? I'm, you know, I'm low paid. I'm very happy here. I'm one of your team leaders. And the general manager's looked me in the eye and says, you know what, if I knew that, I wouldn't have traded you. <laughs> so what is your job? You know, get to know your players a little bit. But 
you know, I got a chance to go play with, with Leland and Pittsburgh and get to be with Lavalier and the boys and Vance Lyke and Bonds and Benia. And, um, after that, signed a free agent to uh, deal with the Yankees. Any good uh, Barry Bonds not talking to you story or just uh, any, any fun things with him? Um, no, I, I, you know, I kept my distance. I mean, he was a great player, no doubt about it. Um, but I just, I kept my distance. Um, you know, I'd seen two other players put him against the wall during the short time that I was there that I knew better than to, uh, to, you know, my, my thing was needling, jabbing guys to, to, you know, get them to loosen up or have fun or be part of the team. And I think it probably would have gone the wrong way. So I chose not to. <laughs> you could have put it, you could have put him against the wall. I, <laughs> right. <laughs> you could do that. that. That's not my that's not my gig either. Right. Well, it's crazy to me that that's eighty eight and it's his second full season and he's already got that. I mean, he had the reputation out of college. I just I don't understand why everything was so negative with him. I, I know his dad kind of had that same that same vibe too. So I guess maybe he just kind of took after his father. Kind of odd though, huh? Well, I also think it's that that's when the the era started where they started pampering the superstar. And instead of the good old days, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, when the, with the Cardinals, you know, somebody, somebody got out of line, um, somebody would get in your face, put you up against the wall. You know, I had Keith Hernandez put me up against the wall. I saw you know, Bob Forster putting Andy Vance Light against the wall. It was things that they put you in your place and they made you wake up, okay? We're not going to baby you. The newspapers might make you out to be a superstar, but we all get dressed the same way in this clubhouse, and you're one of us, so act that way. And I think that, you know, the late 80s when you got there with Bonds, I think that that's when all that, it stopped. Nobody wanted to bother him, and if you did bother him, you were going to be in trouble, not him. Yeah, there's a great video of Leland just letting him have it at spring training, though, and I just wonder how often that happened. Like, we only see this one piece of video that was caught – I don't know if you've ever seen that, and he's just letting him have it, and it's just so cool to see Jim Leland. This at that point, what fifty five, almost sixty, and he's just letting this, letting Barry Bonds have it. I, I love that. Yeah, he's and and, and Leland, he's my second favorite manager that I played for. The, you know, he's he sure was a lot like Whitey in, in his way, and uh, but yeah, he he did that, and and he you know he let you know how he felt. I mean. He, he treated the veterans with respect, but if they got out of line, then he was going to handle it the way he knew how to handle it, and that's the way it should be. But there's not, you know, like I said, around baseball today, a lot of the managers don't even make out their own lineups, so what power do they have to go straighten the player out? It's only going to be, you know, second-guessed in the front office when it happens. So it's it's kind of, you know, the game has changed in a way, and and, you know, we all listen to different music nowadays, so it's, you know, I might like the oldies, but today is different, so... You have to go along with it. That's funny, too, because like, I was around enough to where I still felt kind of current with the players. But now you get you know Jack Flaherty, 21 years old, uh, Luke Weaver, 23, and they, they play video games on their phones, and they just sit at their stall, and they play with their video games against each other while sitting at their stalls, and I, I, don't, I don't get it. So I, I've lost myself. Like The only thing that really is, is Matt Carpenter will sometimes control the music, and uh, it's still music I can enjoy. <laughs> But he's closer to my age. It's just funny how you know you, you, the younger you go, that's it, how it is. It's just part of life. But uh, it is a different. It's a different mindset, uh, you know. And I know you guys just love that fact of all right, game over. Let's have some beers in the clubhouse. And then that that's not happening. Everyone knows about that. Um, it's kind of sad. 
Well, and like I said, you know, the when the, the guys in the 50s got mad at us because we took planes, you know, so um, technology has come along and it's changed the game. And, I, you know, I right now I don't know if it's for the better. It's Sometimes it's hard to watch because, um, you know, as you were saying earlier, when I came up, defense was the, the number one priority. If you had pitching a defense, you were going to win. And, you know, now it's like – if I have strikeouts and home runs, I'm going to win. So um, it, it's changed a little bit, and I'm, you know, it's hard to get used to. But like everything else, we'll move on, and uh, and we will get used to it. And you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, I'm really into the the NHL playoffs right now, and and I'm a, a Tampa Lightning fan because I live down here in Tampa. And it's kind of funny they have all the guys score all the goals they want to during the regular season, but they talked about you know the sweet the four in a row against Boston of how they. They checked. They went and they checked. They hit the boards. They, you know, they kept they kept putting the puck in front of the net the old-fashioned way, and that's how they won. So it's you know, can the baseball teams, when it comes to the playoffs, the World Series, automatically change their their way of thinking around and start playing defense and pitching a little bit better and and, and win a championship? Yeah, yeah. I I just thought it was funny too. Um, I I don't mind sabermetrics. I I'm fine with trying to figure out new ways to to evaluate players. Uh, Brian Kenny just kind of overdoes it, uh, by, and I've talked to Brian about it before, and he, it's fun. I think it's part of a character. But like when Andrew Miller became the thing, or when Kenley Jansen or Wade Davis were, were throwing seven out uh, saves, and friends of mine who love sabermetrics, see, see, it's this is going to happen. It, it, you can't do that over 162, and I just don't understand. These are guys that I, I, you know, think know baseball, and it's just. I, I would get on the phone with Gary Bennett and just go, Gary, am I right? You can't do this in 100. He's like, no, this is only working because it's like playoff hockey. You, you're trying for to win. Short series, absolutely right. Yeah. And, and the two things that I, I think I've uh, um, come to, to grips with what I think is going to happen. For one, I'm very surprised that the Players Association is going along with this letting the starting pitchers only go three or four innings, you know, maybe twice around the lineup before they get yanked or a certain amount of pitches, because if you look at the, the salary of structure and what has made salaries go up in baseball is that your top five starting pitchers who get between 15 and 22 wins a year and they pitch between 180 and 230 innings a year are all making between 15 and $30 million a year. And the Players Association is about protecting the players' salary structure and keeping it up. Well, if your starting pitchers don't, they're not. They're they're going to be lucky if they win ten, maybe twelve. And now your middle long relievers are all going to be winning eight and ten. That salary structure is going to go way down. So pretty soon, I, I would think that the Players Association are going to say something different. Um, well, you're, what you're, was my second part of this that I was going to say? I'm drawing a blank right now, but. Um, oh, the the injury part. I think when you look at Major League Baseball, with the premiums that they have to pay to have insurance on these, you know, multi million dollar arms, there's just going to be more and more and more injuries coming to these arms. And here, here's for example, you know, I know for a fact that some of the teams send send that paper down and dictate. Listen, fifth, sixth, seventh inning, this situation, this guy's going to pitch. And that's before they, they don't even take a concern to go ask that guy how he feels that day. 
And every pitcher in the world, you ask him how he feels that day, he's going to tell you he feels good, he's ready to go. But you you need that pitching coach or that manager to be in tune with him to get the look on his face of what he's really telling you. And I, I just think they're going to go by the book so much and statistically referenced that they are going to have a lot more injuries than they can handle. And, you know, there's going to be a lot more up and down guys, you know, being called up. There's going to be guys getting paid when they're on the disabled list. And pretty soon baseball will wake up to that. And then they'll, they'll go back to wanting their, you know, I managed against Tommy John in the independent leagues and he had a, he had a rule for his pitches, seven innings or 125 pitches. And I thought, you know what, there's the happy medium right there. Uh, if you go seven innings, you're really helping your bullpen out. If you go 125 pitches, you're really, you know, you're getting into the game and it's a pitch count where you're not really going to hurt yourself because without fail, if they set a guy at 110 pitch count, pretty soon they're going to start taking him out every game on 100 pitches so he doesn't go over 110. Well, pretty soon he's not going to be able to go over 100 pitches. It would be back, back down to 90. So there, there's some, you know, adjustments they still have to figure out. They have to get comfortable with it, but it's going to come with the touch and feel of communication with these pitchers and, and finding out where they're comfortable. Yeah. I, I didn't, uh, I did want to ask you uh, as we wrap up here and I appreciate your time. This has been fun. Don't know why it took so long. I blame myself, uh, but you did, uh, you had some time with the Yankees and some great characters there. Ricky Henderson. Do you have a, you have a favorite Ricky Henderson story? Did you get some time with Ricky? Did you get to talk to Ricky in the third person? Yeah. Uh, Actually, we lived in the same building and didn't know about it till about halfway through the first year that we that we we played there together. But no, he was Ricky was good with me, and he was very to himself. Basically, um, you know, the only thing I would I would say that was you know, that was back in the day of the briefcase. You know, my my job is is, is one of the guy. You know, I had to put the small bottles of liquor in the in the briefcase so somebody had it in the back. But you open up Ricky's and he's got comic books in there. But you know, he read them and he collected them. So I got nothing, you know, bad to say about that. But uh, no, he was he was a great player. I think, in my mind, he's one of the five best players of all time with everything that he did. And pitching against him and trying to get that guy out, trying to keep him off the third base, brother, that is no easy job. So no, uh, uh, it was fun playing with the Yankees. Uh, there's nothing, you know. Um, uh, I always brag about this. I'm the only guy in the history to start opening day for the Cardinals and the Yankees who are the two winningest organizations, but pitching opening day and Yankee stadium is one of those things you never forget. And, you know, the week leading up to that opening day to see your name outside, you know, driving down interstate 87, you know, the point versus Indians opening day. That was, that was pretty exciting part of my life to be able to go through that. But uh, that's quite a deal. And, Luckily, uh, what I can say about New York, it's it's a great place when you win. <laughs> and that team went sixty-seven and ninety-five and ninety, so not not so fun, I'm guessing. Yeah, we uh, that was the Deion Sanders era, and uh, we had a lot of things. You know, heading into that contract, you know, there was Jack Clark, there was Dave Winfield, Don Mattingly, Steve Sachs, Paglarulo, you know. Rick Roden, Dave Rigetti, and I, I think I only played with a handful of them. So they they uh, they unloaded the barn, and and uh, the rest of us picked up the slack. But you know, and and you know, I didn't do very well either. So um, I didn't contribute the way I should have. So they uh, they all even out. What Dion? Did you get some time with uh, prime time? This is obviously when he's playing both sports and uh, kind of doing the Bo Jackson thing. Um, I don't think he was playing both sports. Then was he? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe when he, he got to Atlanta. Atlanta yeah, but, um, right. No, I mean, uh, just a truly 
um, a, a good guy, a heartfelt guy that, um, although he was prime time and although, you know, you saw what went on on the TV when the lights turned on, he was a very nice individual. You know, every time he got sent up or down, when I was with the Yankees, he wrote everybody an individual note and thanked them for helping him become a better ball player. And, you know, I, I did uh, dinner with him quite a few times and he was just a, a just a, a good kid. Um, yeah, he could, he could, he could light the room up when he got a microphone in front of him. He was one of the best, but, uh, and he was also very, very talented. You know, some of the things he could do, nobody else could. So it was, it was a pleasure being his teammate. That's pretty cool. So I see you on Facebook. It looks like you live the life down in Florida. Obviously you didn't, uh, get the, uh, the big money that, uh, the players after you got, it was right after you retired in 91 that the, the big money started kind of flowing for Ken Griffey and, uh, some of those players, but uh, looks like you have a, a, a you've you've saved well, I would say, or maybe your your lovely wife, who I'm a huge fan of. Uh, <laughs> well, I would say the other answer to that is, you know, the money is okay, but uh, don't get divorced twice. There's there's a good way to save your money if you really want to. So uh, let me throw that piece of advice out there. But no, we uh, we came down to Tampa and actually thought I was going to be managing the Tampa Yankees, and then. Uh, they go out, they win the championship, and none of their coaches moved any place. So we had a we had a beautiful house and nothing going on. So uh, that's why I managed in the uh, the independent leagues for such a long time. I stayed there, which was a great job. And uh, no, but uh, uh, Denise had a stroke back in 2006, and the the doctor said uh, if there's any reason you don't have to be up there shoveling snow or being in the North Country, I suggest you get to Florida and get a better way of life. And uh, we did, and the doctor didn't lie. It's it's great living down here and being able to go out in a short T-shirt every day. And uh, um, she's caught on now as a real estate agent, and she's doing a really good job with that. So we, uh, me and her and the two dogs, we uh, we're, we're we got it going pretty good down here. Yeah, you send you send the jealousy photos uh, pretty much from November till uh, April, and this this time through May almost. Uh, Would you oh. like it any different? No, I love it. And I, I will be calling Denise soon about finding some property down there because that is my next move is to at least winter in Florida. I like saying that. I want to winter in Florida. Yeah, even uh, today it's just a beautiful 83 degrees out. And, uh, you know, we, we go through, you well, know, you know, July, August, September is pretty hot down there. But I, 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 I kind of remember St. Louis being that same kind of hot. So, uh it's four months down here. As they say, it's like living inside of a dog's mouth. But those other eight months, it's pretty nice. Right. I think I could. I think I could handle it since I already do it in St. Louis during the summer. But uh, again, I, I appreciate your time, and, and I do want to stress one more time: if you're ever thinking about going to fantasy camp, uh, one of the one of, and I mean this, one of the best reasons is to hear Dave Lapointe. Uh, do his thing. It's amazing how much fun it is, and it's all in, it's all in good fun. Uh, anybody who takes it seriously, they're going to get reamed even worse. I mean, I've seen a kid thrown in a pool. I've seen a guy thrown in a trash can head first, and they deserved it. Uh, it is just so much fun. Uh, so yeah, I, I just I think people should uh, should know that. And uh, it's fun talking to you, Dave. You were this was fun. I had a great time. I again don't know why I waited so long. It's my fault. Well. We'll make sure that doesn't you know, the wait isn't as long next time. But let me let me say one thing further about the fantasy camp. And like you said, the, the Joe Pfeiffer does, uh, and, and Cadence and and Selena and Katie and all the girls. The friendships that have come out of those camps that I would say that I have, I mean, thirty, you know, friendships out of that that are ever you know ongoing and just great way to meet new people and. 
um, you know, meet, you meet really good people. That's who go to these things. And that's, that's why you, everybody should at least think about going to one of them and see what we're talking about. That's exactly true. I would not know you if I hadn't been there. And I consider us friends, acquaintances, something. Uh, I just had dinner with Bob Tewksbury to drop a name. I mean, who I would never have known Bob Tewksbury. Uh, it's you're there for four days, and you be, these are your best friends. You you collect the phone numbers, you email, you you talk about what's going on in your life, and you get ready for January to do it again. So uh, yeah, this is a, an infomercial for Fantasy Camp, but I, I can't talk about it better, uh, especially since Joe was so nice to invite me a few times. Sounds like you have a fetish for number thirty nines too. So I'll, I'll have to be watching out for you down there. I'm a huge Roboski fan. That's my guy. <laughs> That's uh, Dave LaPointe on Baseball and Beyond. I appreciate his time. Funny man. I'll get him back on here. We'll get some more stories, see if he's ever uh, pooped himself anywhere else during this uh, his time in life. And that's going to do it for Baseball and Beyond, presented by Masses Restaurants. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.